Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm Scott Chaloner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we ensure we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. Later on in today's show, we'll be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to be joined on the programme by David Hildred, co-director at Boston Crop Sprayers Limited. The business is one of the UK's leading agrochemical contract sprayers based in East Lincolnshire. David, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good good morning, Scott. Thank you very much for asking me. It's a real pleasure having you with us, David. Thank you. Um, The reason we're here, of course, is to establish your take on leadership first and foremost. But considering that today's generation of business leaders is probably going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it would be remiss of me not to ask just how the COVID situation over the last few months has affected your operations. Well, um, being an agricultural-based business, uh, it's not affected us too badly at all, really. Um, I'm a director of three businesses, and um, they've all been affected differently. The the main business, Boston Crop Spreads, which is contracting and machinery, uh, supplying direct farmers, that's been um, very much unaffected uh, because we have to keep... um, the workshops open and spare parts supplied um, as part of the food production uh, circle for the farmers. Um, our other businesses, uh, it, which is a more of a retail side and an equestrian uh, saddlery type business, which uh, was affected immensely, that shut immediately. Uh, we kept open with one person for food and um, uh, bedding uh, for the livestock, but um, generally that that business was affected. And we have another business, which is a soil analysis laboratory, which is very much people-focused. Um, and because of the limited space we have, uh, that was also affected in we had to uh, reduce the workforce um, by half, and we did it in shifts, if you like, one week, half on, one week, half off. And uh, and that was purely because of, of space. So yeah, I've seen all sorts of um, uh, changes and um, no benefits, but um, we're still here, we're still strong, and I feel... Uh, the teamwork has been um, tremendous. The staff have been tremendous. And, um, uh, you know, we, we will survive. And on the programme this week, David, what we are looking to do is try to find some form of silver lining in what's been sort of a dark and dense cloud that's hung over all of us over the last few months with the COVID-19 situation. Um, so could you tell me of any positives that you can see that might have come out of this? Because I'm particularly am looking at sustainability and the emphasis on that as being one thing which is incredibly important because there's a great deal of push now for a an economic recovery that is ultimately going to be an environmentally friendly one. So that's one thing. Well, I, I can't see that our business will change uh, very, very much at all. I can't 
save as a silver lining. Um, we, 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 we view work differently. We can't really work remotely. We're very much um, a uh, hands-on business, really. And whilst I have conducted and been involved in, in several remote meetings, um, other than that, the business will not alter a lot. I will, I hopefully will attend more uh, visual meetings, uh, virtual meetings, sorry, uh, because I feel that was very, very good. Um, being rural, I have to be, um, we, we're a bit limited to the uh, broadband facility, but uh, we, 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 we manage. And I suppose where there have been a few sort of minor hindrances during this time, the fact that you are ultimately a family-run business has helped in the sense that you're all quite sort of close-knit in that sense anyway, and you're ready to sort of tackle any issues as and when they do come along. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very fortunate. i am um, uh, got my son into the business. He runs the equestrian uh, business and the laboratory business. Uh, he's in his uh, early 30s, I'm in the 60s, and so we, we bounce different ideas off each other, and, um, uh, you, you know, I have ideas, he sometimes has uh, a different opinion, but generally it's, it's good that we can talk to each other, and I also have two other very good co-directors, and, um, you know, being a small family business, it's we are like a family, really. And correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, David, but um, I'm under the impression, of course, that you took over the business in partnership with your brother back in 1988. I think that's correct. And of course, yeah, that's mm, correct. Yeah. And of course, over that time, you've accumulated many, many years of um, experience working in the uh, the business. But if you could go back to that day in 1988 when you did take over armed with all of the experience that you have at your disposal now is there anything going forward that you would do any differently um no i don't i don't think so really i am i consider myself very lucky um i'm i i feel i'm lucky the industry that i'm involved with it's um a fantastic industry to be in agriculture um, I probably regret not seeing my uh, children so much when they were younger, but uh, I've got a grandchild now, and so I try and spend a little bit more time with him. But apart apart from the time factor, no, I'm I'm very satisfied. The business has grown; it's done done well, and um, you know I'm seeing a third generation. Uh, in the business, which is um, which motivates me to keep it going. And where would you say day to day that you draw your inspiration from, and that sort of willingness to just keep on, sort of ploughing on, as it were? Well, I, I draw my inspiration from um, business people that are very successful and very motivated, and. Um, you know, there is so many businessmen, uh, leaders, if you like, that are financially very, very secure 
but they're still motivated to keep uh, going, building, having ideas. And, um, yeah, I look at, pe- at some people in awe and think, gosh, I wish I could be like that. And do you think that good leadership, particularly in the business world, is perhaps as recognised as it should be in the UK? And the reason that I ask that question is because I think culturally, when we think of leaders and leadership, we instantly tend to associate it with being in the public eye, with being celebrities, maybe sports personalities, politicians as well, to a degree. And maybe perhaps recognition for those who excel in the business environment, those everyday leaders, if you like, that can kind of fall by the wayside in comparison. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. Con- I, I would never call myself uh, a leader, as you say. I feel a leader is a a figurehead. Um, what I I feel as a uh, manager of of their business that you have to have a respect of clients, employees. You're the decision maker. You're the cost controller. Um, you you've got the welfare of employees at heart. Um, I see myself more as a captain of a team really um, and liken it to a football team you know we uh, we're all batting for the same side or um, and and you know I'm very close to our team and we we, we just talk regularly and um, I feel that I'm part of the team but ultimately take all the responsibility um, and you know, overall, yes, I am responsible, but um, I don't feel that I can say I am a leader. I feel I'm more of a captain. So leadership and management there from that idea are sort of different things, um, I suppose. But then there is a little bit of overlap as well, I guess, in the sense that to be sort of a leader or a captain, rather, as you describe it, um, I think to a degree you do have to have certain people management skills, don't you, be able to keep the communication channels open and work effectively with the team? Yes, you, you do. And and basically you, you have to be able to communicate with... Um, all sorts of uh, people and situations. You know, I've communicated with royalty. I've communicated with um, the farm workers. And um, you have to adapt your conversation to the skills of of these people and um, your employees and their personal circumstances and their welfare. Mm, exactly because no one approach is going to fit every single personality is it you have to be adaptable to be a good people manager I think that's exactly right and having reflected on both leadership and on the last few months um, David I think it only serves that we talk about the future as well just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today Um, we're very aware of course that we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and working over the course of the next sort of 12 to 18 month period but over that time what do you feel is next for you and for Boston Crop Sprayers as a business and what do you really hope to achieve? Well, um, the, tr- the thing is we are finding our market is, is shrinking because uh, the small farmers in this area are, are tending to um, be retiring, uh, renting out the land to or selling their land to 
bigger organisations and being farmed by bigger organisations. So we are um, in a little bit on the machinery and contracting side, a, a bit of a shrinking market. So it's um, keeping that going, changing um, your staffing levels and ev- business um to to adapt to a shrinking market our other businesses are sort of a growing market my son's involved with them and you know he's younger and more ambitious and and will uh, hopefully uh, keep them going for as many years as i've kept this side going Let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share uh, with that over the course of the year, the next few months, and we'll see some continued growth on that side of the year, the businesses, absolutely. Um, I've got to say, David, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today to discuss your take on leadership and also your experience over the last few months. And considering just how insightful it's been having you with us today, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up in the future and have you back on the programme just to see how the marketplace is shaping up and just see the trajectory that the businesses are going on at that point in time lovely well thank you very much for uh, inviting me on and uh, um, I've enjoyed talking to you likewise David it's been a real pleasure and do most importantly take care and stay safe in the meantime with all still going on as well and you thank you very much I would also reiterate that message to all those tuning in and listening today please do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others because it does make a tangible difference in saving lives I was speaking on today's program to David Hildred co-director at Boston Crop Sprayers Limited coming up next on the program today I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss during his playing days Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains who've secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Since retiring from playing, he has taken up the role of Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus Treskothic for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus Treskothic who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career. Full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know I think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, 
And I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no how it played out i've never seen anything i've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life and for it to be the world cup final was quite extraordinary i know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because i yeah well so was, <laughs> was i yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um now in your in your wife's memory you established the ruth strauss foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them. 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.